Hello, and welcome to the Orthopraxis Podcast. We're on episode 10, where we, me, Robbie Timmy, and James O'Farron are going Hello. to be discussing classism versus racism, or in scripture. So, obviously, this is a rather hot-button topic. Or hot, as in scorching hot with fires in the streets kind of topic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hot as in burning buildings and pepper gas, yes. Yeah, yeah, very hot. So, <laughs> We thought it would be this would be a prime opportunity for us to talk about what does the Bible say about mm-hmm. these topics? Because yeah. what orthopraxis in the end is, is it's applying correct orthodoxy, which is right teaching to your everyday lives, to mm-hmm. how we live our lives. And I've seen a lot of I mean, I've, I've listened to a lot of you know, podcasts, YouTube channel, videos, books, articles, Facebook posts, memes, just there is so much stuff talking about this right now. And there's a lot of, you know, statistics going everywhere. There's a lot of, you know, anecdotes going everywhere. A lot of people moralizing. Some of us good, some of us bad, some of us outright stupid. (laughs) (laughs) On both sides. (laughs) Welcome to the internet. (laughs) Welcome to the internet. Uh, But I think, so we're going to try and focus on the biblical side because there's been a paucity from that direction, unfortunately. So I think a lot of it has to do with a fear of offending people of saying because a lot of what's going around (laughs) is no matter which side of the spectrum you fall on or what 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 angle you take you're going to end up offending someone and you're going to make and someone's going to call you a racist or a snowflake or whatever Mm -hmm. and a lot of what i've seen is christians just being like okay i'm just not going to mess with it yeah i'm just gonna sit in my seat and let it all blow past because that's what we what's a lot Which easier it, it comes to mind that's actually kind of a similar strategy that didn't work very well when the science the, the the modern science revolution of evolutionism steamrolled over the christian community and they all like oh that's there, there, there's too much political charge there's too much complexity and we'll just kind of sit back and let the scientists hash it out instead right, of coming at it from a biblical perspective and, you know, examining your beliefs in light of faith and truth in God's word. And we kind of handed over wholesale the entirety of everything outside the church doors to the secular world uh, and just kind of rolled over and played dead effectively. And the secular world and Satan were like, Oh, cool. I'll take that. (laughs) So I don't want to be part of that in this context. (laughs) No, because this is actually something that the Bible speaks very specifically to. And and a lot of Christians are going to have to have an answer on. Yes. And and, and And, it's refreshing because I, I see so many different people being very nuanced and wrestling and it's a complicated issue. And it gets more complicated the further you get from scripture though. And when you go back to the basics, the foundation of scripture, you have a solid foundation that you can build your ideology on your system of ethics, your day-to-day life can be built on scripture in a consistent and beautiful fashion. That is so, so refreshing. 
It just cuts right through all the sophistry and all the craziness out there and go, this is truth. And it's just yes. beautiful. And it's amazing how often that happens. It's the farther it really isn't it? you get from the bedrock, the it's more like shaky you, you get. About. Almost. <laughs> so what we thought would be very helpful here is we're going to define our terms, which is something that doesn't happen a lot on the internet. And yes. in a lot of these conversations, terms are thrown out there and they have such vast semantic domains oh that goodness. nobody can and, and so many argue. Fuzzy, and, emotionally charged connotations that yes. everything is a buzzword. It's yeah. Not equivocation is the absolute fallacy. Rewriting of words and definitions and meanings. So we figured we'd start with, we're going to define these terms as we're going to use them in yeah. this context of this podcast. And we're not and saying that everybody has to use only these definitions for these words in all contexts. Uh, words have multiple meanings, not just one meaning. Um, and they'll be used yes. in different contexts and different situations. We have different ones of those definitions applied. But and so we created a more narrow than usual definition for our purposes in this discussion so that we can be clear in our communication. And we're not going to, you know, argue that everybody has to use these same definitions all the time because that would be ridiculous. That's not how language works. <laughs> okay. So uh, defining our terms, let's start with class. Class. Class is an order or rank of persons, a number of persons in a society supposed to have some resemblance or equality in rank, education, property, talents, and the like, as in the phrase, all classes of men in society. That's from yep. Webster's 1828 dictionary. My favorite dictionary. Awesome yes. stuff. Yep. So, okay, so it's a rank of persons or mm -hmm. a number of persons in a society supposed to have some resemblance in equality. Yep. In rank, in education, property, talents, and the like. So these Which are is amazing. A group of people who are clumped together mm -hmm. by uh, equality in their their status, status and their status, their education levels, um, their wealth, and their ability, their their, their skill sets. Um, yes. What's amazing is is that when you look at the modern uh sociology definitions of class they echo this they actually still measure um the sociological class structure by those same dimensions it's amazing and it's like webster's 1828 had this down already and this is actually one hey, definition a word that, that hasn't before. shifted that much it's amazing <laughs> how does that happen right <laughs> yes. yeah this this core concept though is still valid so that's one thing i really like about it and this I'll, I'll, let's go on to the next definition. We'll con compare and contrast the two and kind of get into why, we, why we're talking about this word. Uh, the next one is race, which technically is ethnicity. And so we're using the word race in synonymity with ethnicity, which right. means of or relating to large groups of people classed according to common racial, national, tribal, religious, linguistic, or cultural origin or background. So to simplify or summarize that, basically it's a group of people that are, have a common origin, a common birth, yes. based on their, their, they're born into the same language, they're born into the same, or the same religion, or the same nation or tribe or family or something along those lines. They have a certain a common cultural origin 
based on one of those particular matrix. So and what's interesting is the contrast between race and class. Race ends up being mostly a common point in the past mm -hmm. where our lines intersected. It, it, right. It's fundamentally irrevocable who you right. were born because as. Your history is irrevocable. You it's not something you can choose either. Where you, who you've been or where you've come from. You can pick your nose, you can pick your family, you can't pick your, you can't pick your, you can pick your nose, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. That old, right. that old saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's the one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, right. and the way to look at this is the difference between nature versus nurture, which is an yes. old and long-standing debate about how much, like, look at intelligence, um, how much of your intelligence is genetic and how much of it is training. And people debate about it uh, from the best number that I've seen is that about 30% of your potential capacity for intellectual growth is based off of genetics and the rest is all mostly your upbringing like before 14 and, and, and younger and the attitude that your parents or your um, parental figures exemplified an interest with as far as your um, encouraging a desire for learning and growth. What, whether you had a growth mindset or a fixed mindset about learning because everybody's born with a natural drive for curiosity. So the question is, is that killed or nurtured in the early right. years? And that has a fundamental impact on your eventual intellectual status. Your, your, your IQ at the end of the day is based upon those two factors primarily. And you can have a horrible childhood and then later on choose to engage in um, training and study. I mean, there is a direct correlation between your uh, vocabulary and your IQ. And so you can, by brute force, increase your intelligence after the fact. Um, but it sometimes will be harder work and it'll take longer than somebody who started earlier and had a, from a longer, from a longer time period, established a habit of learning and growth um, because it was encouraged by their family. So that's a good contrast between, but they have some people who are just, you know, they don't have that same genetic advantage in some ways. And so they have further to go in that context, but it's not the majority of the change. There's that there, there is that element present. So this debate in every aspect of life is frequently raised between nature versus nurture and class versus race are really a, a reflection of that same division. Yes. There's class the same contrast and con on. Right. Yeah. Which brings us to classism and racism, yep. which are, basically the sinful dehumanization or idolization of people based on either their class or ethnicity respectively yes so this is in effect a denial of who of their rights or responsibilities based on what class or ethnicity they are yep and so because everybody has a fundamental baseline value and um, reflection of the glory of God in their imago Dei, in the image of God that was put in them at creation. Right, like, because man is created in the image of God, yes. we all have inherent worth and value. And part of is, that inherent worth and value is a responsibility to reflect back that glory of God in life. We yes. have a moral responsibility to our creator and a moral responsibility to our fellow men who also bear the image of God, which is by proxy, towards our responsibility to our creator. Yes. And we also have at the same time a right or a set of rights 
specifically to that, that God requires that we defend amongst ourselves. We are our brother's keeper in that way. That's why, you know, after uh, the floods and, you know, um, whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for the image of God created he man. God, because God put the image of God into us, we have worth and we're supposed to defend each other and defend that um, image, which includes going to you know, property value, <laughs> our, 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 our rights to own property um, comes from that and the dominion mandate. Um, our right to life comes and flows from that, and that is universal in that context. And so, yeah, these are all rights that are um, part of the Imago Dei, and these are also responsibilities that are part of the Imago Dei. And so if you deny those rights to other people or deny those responsibilities to those people, so like, for example, um, if you are idolizing somebody who is of a higher class and you like these are these people are so much higher than you there so that they can do no wrong right you're assume, always assuming perfect intent from them you are idolizing them and you're removing their responsibility to be moral before the before the side of god they're removing their responsibility to have justice and be held accountable in the same way you can also look at somebody who is you know above or below you for that matter this, this, goes, this goes both directions, yes. um, or even the class that you're in yeah. <laughs> as well. <laughs> uh, a lot of the aristocrats had, had, an, had this kind of ideology where they looked at themselves as being above all this sort of thing, and they had more inherent worth than those that were below them. And, uh, or people who are below will also be jealous of those who are above and dehumanize them and say, these people don't deserve to live because they have more than me, which is classism. Somebody who has more wealth than you is dehumanized by virtue of having more wealth than you. Right. That, that's, we'll go yeah. into that further later on. As, as Classism you know, and racism, we're going to state right at the beginning, both of these are inherently sinful. Yes. And they're inherently against the will of God because they're denying the mago dei that is in every human being. Regardless and of where they're why born. racism is wrong is because it's a denial of the image of God, the created in God's image-ness of every human being. It's reducing that to something that you can throw away. It's a dehumanization. Yep. And it's the same with racism, with classism, and either up or down, whether you're dehumanizing them or you're putting them on a pedestal and idolizing them. Mm-hmm. It's all sin because it's a denial of their fundamental humanity. Indeed. And the humanity is a gift from God when he created us in his image. Right. And one other thing I want to uh, touch on is what do we mean, uh, clarify a little bit further on ethnicity. Um, one of the biblical concepts that you can go a lot really in depth into is the nations and the genealogies and the peoples and the tribes. And there's a, um, these cultures that go along with them and we look at race and it tends to be equivocated with skin color nowadays. Right. That's not the whole picture. And in fact, no. it's a very small part of the picture. In fact, I would actually argue it's probably not any of the picture at all. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, th- there's no logical correlation between them. There's uh, quite a few people groups, ethnicities um, that 
are of you know black skin color or technically not black it's definitely just darker brown um melanin inclined ethnicities <laughs> yes <laughs> i like that one um they uh are from cultures and nations and places that have nothing in common with the specific people who identify with um the black culture in america specifically um and and in you know some of the um like in britain as well and some of the other european countries right there's and a part of the problem culture that, right Very. that we're running into is that we become so focused on the issues in america mm-hmm. that we don't realize that this whole intersectionality and black lives matter and the whole conflict all breaks down as soon as you leave the United States. Yeah. As soon as you go to China or if you go into Africa and now the roles are reversed or if you go, none of it makes, and there's no carry over between the two uh, between them. So Mm -hmm. what we want to avoid is we want to avoid being stuck where we're just talking about our very small location, which is why we're talking. The reason we're here is to talk about, what does the Bible say? Because mm-hmm. the scripture it transcend is by God and, and transcends. Yes, it's <laughs> transcendent above all of the cultural issues that we're dealing with right now. Because God Which, is unchangeable and the law is reflection of his nature. And so these principles and uh, moral judgments from scripture are going to be true, period, no matter what millennia you're in no matter what country you're in no matter what culture you're a part of whatever history you have this cuts right through all of that complexity right down to the heart of the matter so right because in the end the foundation that we have to lay is the scripture scripture Mm -hmm. is the foundation upon which everything else must be built so with that we're going to go into this scripture and we're going to talk about what so what is the scripture's view of inequality and mm-hmm. races classism all that kind of stuff so and, and 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 just caveat there are a lot of scriptures on this subject like oh yes a lot a lot we had to cull down and trim down what we were going to talk about for the sake of time and we're not going to be able to quote all the things that we called down to um right. which is also why we're not going to be talking a lot about statistics and other anecdotes because when we don't have time for it all and they're all often subject to interpretation and whatnot. And so we're anchoring ourselves in the core scriptures that um, define your interpretation through the rest of scripture. Right. So, so I what encourage we're trying you to do here is to we're trying more. to lay a foundation yeah. that you can build on and we want to give you a way of building a solid foundation. Indeed. And then you can go from there and see what lines up with the foundation Indeed. and what parts of your world you may need to be cut out. So for starters, let's start with James chapter two. One now, of my James, favorite books of the Bible for some reason. Yeah, um, I was recently, <laughs> me and some of the young men at my church were preaching through James and we were talking about, and it was interesting because James 
unlike Paul, James really isn't all that bothered with writing a consistent flow through his book <laughs> of like a systematic flow starting from one point and flowing all the way through carrying the same thought. James he is like a rather frenetic in the way he <laughs> picks random picks different <laughs> things that he says, oh, and by the way, this, this is important. You're doing this wrong. Fix this or it's all going to burn down. <laughs> oh, and over here, that also is wrong. Don't do that. <laughs> so yeah. we come to Shotgun preaching. chapter two. Yes. <laughs> and it's very, and I, and I love it because it's very, oh, what's the word? Almost emotionally charged. Mm. He's very intense about the way he communicates these different points. He is full of zeal for righteousness. I'll say yes. That. Yes. It, it, it reminds me a lot of Peter. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, okay. Had so, a lot <laughs> yeah, they, there are a lot of parallels between them. So James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with gold ring and, and good, goodly apparel, and there have come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respected to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit under my footstool. Are ye not partial in yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not the rich oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye respect persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. And just okay. footnote, this is the King James Version, so some of the um, verbiage is a little bit archaic. So when it says the gay clothing, it just means brightly colored or fancy. <laughs> yes, <it's... laughs> um, so as far as what did that mean, if it was hard for you to understand, basically what he's saying is he's telling them, when people come into your church, you can't be judging them based on what they look like or how rich or poor they are. Because mm-hmm. it says Which, if you see someone coming in with good clothing and rich apparel, uh, but there also comes somebody in who has poor clothing and is dressed in rags. Possibly smelly. And you treat them differently. Mm-hmm. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, what's fascinating is this actually was practice in some um, British churches. There, it, George Mueller um, actually acted against this in one of his churches because the common practice at the time was for you to rent pews. And that was one part of where you got income for the church where they would have the really nice pews and with their, their box seating and really plush seats and everything. And then you had, you know, the general entry where it was just, you know, you know, a cold wooden board kind of thing. And if you wanted to wanted to reserve your seat and you wanted, you would actually buy and rent that particular seat, kind of like you would do in a theater. And so you had status in how you sat in the church based off of your income. 
um, which is you know explicitly a violation of James too. <laughs> right. And so um, George Mueller, uh, you know, banned that in his church, even though that was literally his income. That was how they paid their their pastors was from the income from those rents. And so he went over to a voluntary donation system and God provided for him, which is you know beautiful, a great illustration of God's care for people. But he did it out of this respect for the poor. And he went on starting orphanages and that kind of, he was a great uh, man of God. But th- this is a principle that is, you know, even in, in modern churches, I've seen behavior like this, where if you come into a service and like you're homeless, you're coming off the street and your clothes haven't been washed, you're kind of smelly and people say, you know, go sit out in the foyer. You don't want to disturb everybody. And somebody comes in in a nice business suit with a tie, you know, then every, every kind of flocks around you and you, you, you get to sit in the front row kind of thing. And not every church is like that. I have been in churches who are really good at not doing that. Um, and I've been in churches that are, Fall, fall prey to this particular sin. But this is a, a form of classism, which is you know, a sin. This is explicitly a sin. So this is kind of kind of the heart. Yeah, and of, then in verse 8 especially, yes. it gets to the key. If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, yeah. You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And then he goes on and talks about how if one, you're violating one part of the law, you are in violation of the whole law of God. It's not like it's this is an insignificant thing. This is right. a fundamental thing. It's like you're, you're breaking the law, period. Yes. You're breaking the image that God has created. Yep. You're right. driving people away based on something that isn't important because of your evil thoughts you've judged people based on their wealth and income and status and one of the things that it draws a clear point to at this point in this passage is that morality you know your righteousness the thing that god actually cares about does not correlate with your wealth he points out that there are many poor people in the world who in the church who were rich in faith and they were the heirs of the kingdom, right? And this is, this is high status in the, in the church um, before God. But it's, it was the rich people who were oppressing them. I wasn't saying that all rich men were oppressors and it's you know, evil to be rich. We'll get to that later. But he's saying the people who are doing wrong, who are hurting you, drawing you before judgment seats to have your property taken away and killed are rich people. So obviously rich wealth does not correlate with being righteous <laughs> uh, it's not uh there's, there's no correlation there so there's this you're, you're measuring things on the wrong things this is kind of our first initial foray into inequality in scripture that you do not particularly not in the church <laughs> um give more credence and more status and more weights to people who have a different class from each other um, but this is, and this focuses mostly on dehumanization of those who are of low class and idolization of those who are in high class. But what's interesting is that the Bible also talks about the inverse. Uh, if you go back, so let's look at some of the other passages in Scripture, um, talking about some of the instructions, the many instructions about 
how class works in the, um, in the Old Testament, particularly. So the next passage is that I want to draw, and this is repeated frequently um, throughout the entire Mosaic Law, and it is also quoted multiple times through the records of the kings um, and through the prophets. So this is a common theme that crops up very frequently. And it's held right, as a, a, a standard image. She was trying to trim this down so we could. Yeah, we're trying to pick which one we wanted it. to quote yeah. here. Yeah, it is. It is really. It was really challenging to try and pick out here. But this is one passage that's really key. I want you to go look at the context. So the whole context is Leviticus nineteen nine through eighteen, with more marginally other sides. There's so much. Seriously, people go read Leviticus. Um, people have this thing against it i don't know what it is about you know exodus they we like like the first part of exodus but not the last half uh and then you know numbers evidently puts people to sleep and leviticus and deuteronomy are, are just bored people to tears they they're not boring they are treasure troves when, when you look at psalm 119 when david is talking about the law of god and the scripture and how beautiful it is and how he meditates in it day and night he's talking about these books these specific books he wasn't talking about the New Testament. <laughs> it wasn't written yet. So uh, seriously, uh, go read these. These, these, these are, there is a treasure, a, a, tr a field of treasure in the Mosaic law that you can learn from and apply. And so much of the New Testament principles that Paul directly derived from these passages. So if you have not read them or if you're not familiar with them, go amend that pronto. So this particular passage is Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. And it starts off and it starts talking about how to care for those who are underprivileged, who have, who don't have advantages, equal advantages with other people. So um, specifically the ones that frequently crop up and are the, the, um, the people that you're supposed to care for are the, the, um, the fatherless, the widows, the strangers in the land, um, the poor, right? These are the people that need to be cared for. And they do this by letting them gather the gleanings of the harvest, to gather the leftovers out of harvesting. And you're supposed to deliberately leave extra for them to gather up. All right. Yeah, Which is kind of the opposite of what the... Harvest what, all the way to your edges. You're not supposed yep. to gather up the fallen grapes. So be inefficient. Those are for let them the gather form. your inefficiencies. Yeah. Uh, which, right. I, which I get so frustrated with because the um, a lot of the um, the lawsuit culture um, in modern America in particular, where it's legal for them to sell stuff after a certain day, even though it's not bad, it's still perfectly good food. They have to throw it out, but they can't even give it to people. They can't even give it to a food bank. Um, they can't even give it to their employees to give to people. It has to be thrown away and destroyed. And there are tons, like literally tons of perfectly good food that cannot be given to the poor um, because of regulations and fear of lawsuits and such, uh, which is, you know, I, I would argue is a direct violation of this principle of letting your right. gleanings go to the people who need it. Uh, if you can't so, sell it, let them, let them eat it. Anyway. Yes. So he talks about the vineyards and how you're supposed to care for the poor. Mm -hmm. And then he says, you shall not steal. You shall not de deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another, mm -hmm. which you goes into honesty in trade and market. Um, it talks frequently uh, in Proverbs. It even talks about how the weights, the, the just weights and measures yes. Um, yes. are of the Lord. Like God, yes. False weights the market. <laughs> Do yes. not yes. Um, defraud each other. Be honest and forthright in your dealings. Don't cheat 
basically. Which goes on to, you shall not swear by my name falsely, promising mm -hmm. by the name of God when you're lying. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And no breaking covenants. 1913. Yes. Leviticus 1913, you shall not possess your neighbor, nor, sorry, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of the hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So what that is, is it's about helping your neighbor mm -hmm. and caring for those who are even working for you. Mm -hmm. Even the worker, you need to pay him on time so he can feed his family. Yep. And then it talks about the disabled, the blind mm -hmm. and the deaf. Mm -hmm. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but fear your God. Why? Because I am the Lord. Going back you to the Imago Dei. Yes, because he is God. You shall fear him by not oppressing those who are weaker or disabled or under your power by mm -hmm. fact of them being hired workers mm -hmm. yep and then we have this gem you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment thou shall not respect the person of the poor don't show partiality to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor and this is in context of uh, quoted in context of judges that are evaluating court cases and such like but it was also something that in the time of the judges and in the Mosaic law that every single person, the elders were the ones who were helping to arbitrate between each other. Um, so everybody was the judge of their neighbor in a sense. It was a open source communal collaborative um, justice system, which is kind of cool, but I won't get into that rabbit trail. <laughs> yes. um, but the, the point here is that when you are, doing righteousness in your market, in your business, in your justice system, you don't give favor to the poor or to the rich, to the mighty, the people who are advantaged or to the disadvantaged. You don't curse them. You don't make things hard for them. You help them. You deal fairly with them, but you also don't favor them at the same time which I think is just, just it's, it's very balanced and even-handed. You can't take into account how much money they have or even their position of authority in society. Mm -hmm. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Everybody is equal before the law. Yes. And then it goes on, um, not going up and down as a talebearer for your people. You know, don't go you know, slandering people or you know, standing against each other, bearing a grudge against each other, not hating your brother in your heart. Um, if you have a quarrel with somebody, deal with them directly. Um, if they're doing wrong, call them on it directly. Help each other to walk righteously. Um, don't avenge each other. And this is where the passage, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, is right here in verse 18. This is where that, that the second most important commandment in the law is right here um, and not bearing grudges not avenging and loving your neighbor as yourself i am the lord 
and this Which is, is a, a common aspect. theme throughout the whole thing. Of course, throughout yes. the whole of the law, and yes. specifically referring to this cla- different classes of people. Mm-hmm. The common theme is that he is the Lord and mm-hmm. we should love our neighbor as ourself, which is yep. what Jesus refers to as the second law. Yep. I mean, the the primary really law is love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself because love how God and we show that we love God is how we interact with his image bearers that mm-hmm. are around us. And it, and it comes down to all the rest of this is just, you know, practical application and unfolding of how do you love your neighbor as yourself? Because we, I mean, a, a lot of other you know, religions have had this kind of concept of, you know, um, be nice to each other in a generic term, but they all have differing interpretations of what that means. You know, everybody disagrees on how to be nice to each other. And that's one of the beautiful things about, you know, scripture is that it breaks it down very practically that, um, because of the Imago Dei, it tells you why, in the first place, we should be nice to each other, um, but why we should love each other and how to do it in a way that does honor the image of God. Because if you um, go either direction, it's like if you, you know, gave um, escape clauses in justice to the rich people or to the poor people, you are idolizing the person. Like we talked about earlier, you're removing their responsibilities before God. Um, or if you come down more harshly on them than otherwise, you are dehumanizing them and removing the image of God, which is in sharp contrast. Which is, it, it always boggles the mind people who say that you know, the Jews just borrowed laws from those around them. And it, it, there's such a huge contrast between the Mosaic law and the laws of the nations that were around them. We actually can read, and they had nothing like this at all they had completely different laws for people who were of higher class than lower class where if you were poor you got executed if you stole and if you're rich you might have to pay a fee kind of thing yeah and completely it, different right and it ties directly to the fact that we're all made in the image of god as opposed to some people actually being descendants of divinity or Uh some people being blessed of God because they had wealth and therefore you knew who was holy by who is wealthy. None of that is the Judeo-Christian worldview. And we understand that this isn't something that's just a temporary thing. Mm -mm. Because in Matthew 26, it says, for you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And, and this and is after a woman pours, I think essentially, wasn't it? How many denarii was it? Was it 200? It like, yeah, which is like a lot. Almost half a year's wages worth of perfume on Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't even sell this and so let's give it to the poor. He validated the action of, yes, yeah, so you should be giving to the poor. You know, this is still how you should be behaving, but in this context, she was right to do what she did. Right. And, but the fact that the poor, there are always going to be those who are poorer Mm -hmm. than everybody else. Yeah. There are always those who are going to be richer than everyone else. And it's interesting because it's, the Bible never denies this reality. The Bible never goes around saying, 
okay, there are poor and there are rich. That's not how it's supposed to be. We should all be equal because yeah, that's pro- a fantasy <laughs> that Bible doesn't deal in. Yeah, the, the, Bible- the problem is not the existence of class. The problem is how you interact with people of classes. And it's interesting that there is a balance there that you don't want to do. Uh, Proverbs 30, where mm-hmm. he's asking God, the um, teacher is asking God, I forget, is this Lemuel? I don't remember. Uh, anyway, yes. He, he's asking God and he says in Proverbs 30, verse 8, remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food convenient for me lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. So here he's asking God to give him what he needs. Mm -hmm. So he's not poor and therefore starving and stealing Mm -hmm. and blaspheming and taking the name of God in vain. And he's not rich because riches have a tendency to draw us away from God. And this is actually ties back to, is it Deuteronomy eight where it says you need a remit. They're supposed to, the Israelites are supposed to set up these reminders of Mm -hmm. who God is and how he brought them out of Egypt Mm -hmm. because when they reach the land that they've been promised and they find all these good things that they didn't have to work for, yeah. Then they'll forget who God is and yeah. stop remembering the good things that God did for them as they brought them out of the land of Egypt and led them through yep. the wilderness and conquered the nations before them. They'll forget because they've been made fool. And this is a challenge that we all face. I mean, constantly, it, it, regardless of what class we're in, um, we struggle with this. I mean, when things are easy, we forget to pray. We forget to seek after God. When things get hard, oh, suddenly we're starting to pray. It's like, you know, the jailhouse converts. As soon as they get arrested, yeah. oh, God, please, I'll serve you. We if start you to get pray. Off. Or we go all the way and we end up <laughs> being like Job and questioning the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. We're, we're so yep. fallible and flawed. And yeah. <laughs> It's amazing it's how bad we are at dealing with the undulations of life. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, but then, at the other hand, because you might, if you take this particular passage in isolation, you might say, oh, so this actually is saying to, you know, repudiate the existence of class and say everybody should be middle class. There should be neither, there should no, be no poor people and there should be no rich people because of these, you know, traps that they could fall into. But that would be if you take it out of context. <laughs> right. Because we also have other passages that deal with this, such as one of my favorite passages that I bring up frequently in dealing with, um, well, debt as one particular aspect, but in a lot, it's a, a lot of different applications you can draw from this is 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 17 through 24, uh, which is, it talks a lot about marriage. And then it brings out this particular principle that he then applies to marriage. And he says, but as God has just distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. That would be really hard, wouldn't it? Anyway, um, is any... <laughs> yeah, and the ESV, it's let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I mean, how, how would you do that, though? I mean, but anyway, <laughs> how would it, is any called in uncircumcision? Let him be, not be circumcised. That makes more sense. This is a, it's spiritual metaphor, I suppose. Anyway, um, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it 
rather. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man, wherein he is called, therein abide with God. Now, this is such a beautiful, beautiful, centralized expression on dealing with class and a lot of different things. Because you have people who, if you are a, if you are poor, if you're a servant, you are reminded that in Christ you are rich. But if you are rich, then you can remember that before Christ you own nothing and you're humble before him. So Christ is the measure that you balance yourself against to find that ground so that you don't have to fall prey to these temptations regardless of what class you're in. But it's also, so, so don't mind it. These things do right. not impact your relationship with God directly. But then he says something interesting. He says, he says yeah, first, stay in your class. You know, kind of stay in your lane kind of things. Stay, is, don't, right. don't worry don't about it. Don't try to be someone who you aren't. Right. But then... If God called says, you as a circumcised person, be that. Yes. If God yes, called you as it. uncircumcised, you don't have to change to be of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Right. So you, you could argue with that, that say, well, that's kind of like, you know, um, act your station. You know, don't try and elevate yourself or don't try and lower yourself. That's more like but, a great ethnicity thing. Exactly. It's like, it, Circumcision, you could, uncircumcision was a background right. thing that's related to, are you a Jew? Are you a Gentile? That's where the distinction was. And, and he's reflecting both ethnicity and, um, both right. ethnicity and um, class here, which is really fascinating. And, and there's this one passage here. There's one piece that he, he used just to balance the whole thing beautifully. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. If, if you have the opportunity right. to stop if, being a servant and elevate yourself, become right. a you freeman. Gain your freedom, avail it. yourself of the opportunity. Right? Yes, because he says, you are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Which, um, another passage... Excellent. You know, if you're the borrower, a servant to lender. So this is the you know, part of the argument for not going into debt. Is right, and you don't willingly enter yourself into servitude. Don't lower yourself in class <laughs> willingly, and seek to be liberated. Don't you know make it your life ambition and goal and the def definition of your identity and worth is not your class. You don't worry about that much. But as you have opportunity seek to advance your liberty because you are a better because later on um am i jumping ahead in these passages here i am there's a, 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 we'll, we'll get to it later a little bit too um right but uh i'll give a teaser it's interesting that, because these all tie together they all tie together so well so well um, right and it ties back to we all are the same before God because we're all created mm -hmm. in God's image. Exactly. So you're not, and, you're not trying to redeem your value. You're not trying right. to increase your value. Your value to you're God to has nothing to do with your financial station. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the goal is not, to, is not to advance yourself, but to create more opportunity and freedom to serve and give, which is another passage we'll get to later on. So the next passage in our list here in our very neatly organized notes. Ha ha ha. We spent like almost two hours trying to organize these. Two or three yeah. hours. Yeah. Trying to talk through all this. Oh my goodness. Um, and like moving passages, trying to try and get it all in some yep. semblance of a direction. <laughs> so if it makes no sense, it, it, yeah, it's our fault. Anyway, but you can ask us and help us to clarify and, and join yeah. the discussion and we can uh, talk through it. And we'd love to hear your impact, your, 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 
views and feedback on this particular one. I'd love to enter in the conversation yeah. with y'all. Yes, this is a um, great one to have a nice, yes, interesting conversation on. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, and the next one is Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 5. So Colossians 3, he's talking about taking off your old man mm-hmm. that's been crucified and putting on your new man, your new life in Christ. Mm-hmm. And he says, put to death, therefore, that what is earthly in you, sexual mm-hmm. immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So powerful. Now, I love, I love this verse mm-hmm. specifically. And just that last phrase, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Yeah. Because one of the things I've always enjoyed doing is seeing like the broad pictures Mm -hmm. that help clarify the view of everything else. Seeing the overarching principles, the main foundational things upon which everything else is built. And this was one of the key verses or key sentences that help me kind of put this idea together Um, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now covetousness is the sinful desire for something that somebody else has. Yep. And what's interesting is that and covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry is the sin of making something else God of worshiping something else in place of God. Yep. And what's interesting is every sin in essence is putting something else before God. And covetousness is saying you don't like what God has given to you. You believe that God has messed up and mm-hmm. has given something to someone else what he should have given to you. That you know better than God what you deserve Mm -hmm. and that is idolatry because it is putting yourself and your desires above what god has created for you and And that also ties back to what we were just talking about with the be content with where you are yep and it also ties back to god has made as well right with idolizing, um, instead of re- being content with the image of God, you're idolizing. And you're like, I am worth more than this. <laughs> right. And this can form classism mm-hmm. so easily. Covetousness is like the direct precursor to classism. Yep. And, and it can be from multiple different perspectives. You can kind of put in a couple modern perspectives, you know, two different ones. You could have a person who looks at those who are wealthy and covets it. So it's not fair that they have so much and I have so little. This is wrong. I want that. And they try and take it, whether through you know direct theft or through um, you know outsourcing to the government through taxation. Um, that's a whole other subject. Um, so on the corollary to this, there's also the possibility that someone who is rich can be covetous of having more riches and more wealth and be greedy and pursue after and idolize um, mammon, you know, and pursue after it to his own detriment. And greed and covetousness never know an end. There there is no um, satiating of the greed. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which goes goes into, you know, the next passage in 1 Timothy 6, um, 5 through 10, and is specifically talking against some people who sound a lot like 
like the prosperity gospel people nowadays. I'm not going to bring on to that. But anyway, um, <laughs> it, it really does sound a lot like prosperity gospel that and really slamming them. So he goes, perverse, referencing all these people who are saying wrong things. It says, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds who are destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, which we had just talked about, about how godliness and richnesses do not correlate. Uh, From such, withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, or all kinds of evil, depending on translation, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So this is talking about the kind of person I was just talking about, where people who are greedy, who have idolized wealth, and they're seeking after it to the detriment of all others. They're coveting after it. And they've set riches as their identity and their measure of their own self-worth. And he's reminding and bringing them back down to ground. It's like, you know, we're all going to die and we're none of us going to carry any of this stuff out. So our value is not in what we have and what we possess. So be content with your basic um, necessities in that sense. Yeah, and this is probably one of the besetting sins of our capitalistic society mm-hmm. is capitalism is very much focused on not being content with what you have. It can be, and yeah. Yeah, it, it, le- it, it leans in this direction. And, it, mm-hmm. and yes, the contentment, the godliness co- with contentment is great gain. It's something we've so much lost. In fact, little pet peeve of mine when <laughs> uh somebody i forget i've heard it several times but the orderliness is next to godliness oh or cleanliness is next to godliness like cleanly, that's the one cleanliness is next to godliness i'm like that is nowhere in the bible the more appropriate <laughs> one would be contentment is next to godliness yes would be at least i can make a biblical argument for that so that's like a side note pet peeve yeah you yeah, I, I can see you, Ravi, as a little boy rolling around in mud, and he probably still <laughs> <laughs> little, you know, twenty-some-year-old, you know. <laughs> I know you, teamies. <laughs> yes, yes, but the the contentment again, the mm-hmm. the being okay with where God mm-hmm. has put you. Yeah, which reflects but back to First Corinthians seven. Paul's clothing, we will be content. Yep. <laughs> Which is like what Paul was saying earlier. It's like there's a difference between if thou mayest be made free, if you have more opportun- opportunity for more freedom, which, you know, in a fundamental economic sense, um, having wealth is freedom. There's a, that's yes. the definition yes. of it in a fundamental philosophical sense. The opportunity to have freedom, you know, use it rather. Take that opportunity, but be content with where you're at. God provides with every, for everybody where they're at. And sometimes opportunity is provided to advance further. And that's fine. You take that opportunity, but don't define yourself by the questing for it effectively. Right. All right. So which going back into, so you could looking at all of this, say that the Bible is against being rich, right? You, you, you could looking at these scriptures, you know, say that. Um, 
But what's, what's really interesting is like, like, like you know, Ravi was saying that, you know, capitalism has these particular downfalls that also that socialism and communism also have certain downfalls that are also condemned oh, yes. in scriptures. Um, what's interesting is socialism has the very same downfall. It does. It, it's just framed differently. It's just the, it's the exact same sin. It's, same, it's still covetousness. What's interesting is almost all sins are universal. You can it's in, uh, funny how that racism works. Racism it's, it's, it's like we're all human. sin that all of us can do. Covetousness <laughs> yep. is a universal sin that no matter how rich you are, I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos with all the money in the world, oh, yeah. covetousness is still a sin you can struggle with. Indeed, indeed. So, so, how what does the bible have to say about people who are you know like jeff bezos or um you know really super hyper rich people or just people who are just high class people who you know make enough to not have to worry about bills or you know independently wealthy people who um are making you know your passive income is greater than their um expenses you know what 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 does that have to say for these past people do they you know illuminate themselves um do they destroy their means of income <laughs> and make themselves poor or what, what do they do um so in first timothy 6 again just 17, later down in the same chapter so yep, he's told them to put aside these things to put aside the covetousness mm-hmm. and the greed and but as for you oh man of god flee these things pursue mm-hmm. righteousness godliness faith love steadfastness mm-hmm. gentleness fight the good fight. And then he goes down and he's explaining how we're supposed to live this good life and how we're supposed to, if we're not doing the whole tension and greed and covetousness, what are we supposed to do? And then he comes to- What do I do with my life if I'm not pursuing well? (laughs) Then he goes to verse 617. Mm -hmm. It says, for those that are rich in this world, Right, specifically clarifying not you know ever you know those who are righteous are rich in heaven, but specifically those who are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, which um, communicate in this. Um, context and in this terminology in the king james is specifically referencing um giving right uh, uh supporting, to be so supporting each to other share is the ESV. Yeah. yep yeah um laying up in store for themselves was you know a, a, a monetary term you know put, putting in your savings account kind of thing a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life so don't prioritize your wealth gaining strategies here. Don't trust in it. Realize that you're going to die and use the opportunity that you have by having these riches to do good works that then themselves are an investment in what will last in heaven. Right. Like so, Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Exactly. And one of the ways you do that is by giving, being generous, supporting each other. And somebody who's rich has far more opportunity to do that. So instead of hoarding it, which Jesus had several parables about <laughs> hoarding, <laughs> yes. um, you, instead of that, you go add value to people. You use it. In fact, there's um, a proverb that says that curses are on those who hoard their food, but the, the blessings are on those who sell it. It doesn't necessarily yes. say those who give it freely, but those who sell it, you're adding value to other people. Just because you're getting profit from it does not mean that you're being greedy. 
this is how economics works. For this is how economics works. Yes. Economics so, um, <laughs> exactly. So by accumulating wealth, you are then enabled to then be of service to people and do things that other people can't to, you know, to support um, good works and to help enable amazing feats of generosity that would be completely impossible otherwise. And those actions themselves are investments in something that is eternal that will last past your deathbed. Past your deathbed. And there's several references in um, scripture to people who were what the Bible terms as mighty men of wealth, as you know, the mighty men of war. There's also mighty men of wealth. Um, one of them was Boaz, uh, one of Jesus's forebears. Um, yes. You what? may this have heard great, of Ruth. Great grandfather this David. is the guy who married Ruth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a whole book named after his wife. Um, <laughs> and so in, in Ruth 2.1, it explicitly says um, that Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, the family of Luminic, and, and his name was Boaz. And what's amazing is that she wasn't going after him for his wealth. Uh, he actually explicitly mentions that later on. He, he was commending her for going after him. He goes, you're not going after younger men or more wealthy. Uh, it's those who are you know, coming after me, which was awesome for him, of course. Um, but uh, is also that he was moral, he was upright, he was kind, and he was generous. He was exceedingly generous, specifically to Ruth, probably because he had a crush on her. But that's <laughs> aside from the point. <laughs> He, that was one of the reasons why she went with him. It was with the other people that he was caring for. Um, right. She saw the way that he treated his people. And mm -hmm. yeah, and we see this throughout the Old Testament. It talks mm -hmm. about wealthy men who were still good men. Job is a specific. Oh, yeah. Job's an interesting case. I love Job. Yes. But yeah, yeah. at the beginning, it states that he was the wealthiest man in the East. Yeah. I think is what it says. Which is pretty significant. Right. So <laughs> he was literally the wealthiest person in his entire part of the globe. Yeah. And yeah, that time period was losing, the world. Yes. So, which was basically the entire world. Yes. Because so, I mean, yeah. it, it was still in the time when men were spreading out from a central location. And, yep. But what's interesting is he was the wealthiest person. Again, it's not mentioned as a bad thing. It's just a mm -hmm. description of who he was and his status. He loses it all. And then at the end of the book of Job, God gives him back double of everything he had before. So God doesn't say, don't worry, you're better off now because <laughs> you're not very wealthy. Right. God doubles his wealth mm -hmm. and, and gives him back more than he was. So now he's twice the wealthiest <laughs> man yep. in the East. What's Which, also fascinating is when you look at the things that Job said. So, and he was obviously, is, he was justifying himself and whatnot. But he was referencing the time before all his troubles came, which scripture says he was doing everything right during that time. So you can look at what he was referencing as examples of how to live godly. And he's talking about how generous he was and how his whole motivation wasn't climbing in wealth. He wasn't saying, I'm, I was righteous because I was wealthy. He said, um, I wasn't doing anything wrong as a wealthy person because I was generous, which I, I think is a fascinating illustration of this point. But yeah, there's, there's several mentions. I mean, you, you can look at, you know, Solomon. Um, you can look at a bunch of other people who um, God used um, their wealth to work with. There's also an example, the other reference of Mighty Man of Wealth was um, when Israel was being held under tribute 
and the king was um, uh, not doing a very good job. <laughs> he was held under tribute by the king of Assyria. And so he needed to get wealth and he went to the mighty men of wealth of the nation to supply the tribute in order to keep the nation from getting wiped out, which I find interesting from economic and political perspective. But it also shows that these mighty men of wealth were actually uh, more wealthy than the government at the time, which I find fascinating. Yeah. Um, another passage that shows the uh, balance in this is Romans 12, 16, which is a beautiful chapter. It covers a lot of stuff about orthopraxis. Yes. Uh, there's one particular passage, be of the same mind one toward another, right? Um, mind not, you know, don't you know, care about or put too much of an emphasis on high things or um, in noble things, but condescend to men of low estate. Don't care about things that are, you know, lofty and, you know, the frippery, but, you know, work with and lower yourself in humility to engage with men who are of low estate, which is explicitly low class. That's, that, that's what that means. Do not be wise in your own conceits. Don't take your, don't, don't, don't be conceited. And then another one, Psalm 131, verse 1, which I find another one talking about being humble. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. This is a sense of contentment and humility in how you engage uh, with God and with you know status and things like that. So it's just there's a lot there's, there's a lot of passages dealing with this particular concept. All right, so here's another passage in this in this same line. We're talking currently about the attitudes and responsibilities of those who are of opportunity and status. Um, particularly now, let's move over into those who have authority specifically. Um, this is something that I studied a lot in dealing with biblical government and how that works and what the Bible has to say about how authority in the context of magistrates works. There's a few passages, it's actually in each of the Synoptic Gospels, that talks about contrast when the, the, the disciples were arguing and bickering with each other about their own status within themselves, right? Right. Yeah, and, and arguing Jesus, about who's the best, who gets you know, to sit at your right hand. Right, right, all that good stuff. And Jesus yeah. rebuked them. And he says, you know that the princes, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But so it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man, himself, came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And as you know, you look at the harmony of the gospels on how that flows with all of them. Um, the interesting that I want to zero in on is this, this phrase, the prince of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. They are great exercise authority upon them. Um, exercise lordship, exercise authority. Right. Um, or and when you, when you look into... Don't you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them yep. and their great ones exercise authority over them? It shall not be so among you. Which, which is interesting because it's not saying that they don't have authority over each other. He's saying it's the manner of authority. It's the so lording is, it over them. If you go into the Greek, I won't go too far into it, um, but 
when you look at what these words mean, the exercise dominion is a sense almost of standing over and crushing someone under your heel to, to be metaphorical. It's a sense of ownership, of control, dominion, supremacy. Like you are better than these people, right? What is explicitly we're talking about is not correct. And everybody is, you know, of equal value before the Imam of the day. This is a kind of classism that he's talking about here where you are dehumanizing a lower class and you're idolizing a higher class and exerting this kind of domineering, controlling ownership of the lower classes. And he's saying, this is how the Gentiles do this. Don't do that. And he contrasts it. It's like, if you're going to be chief or if you're going to be great, he is a servant, right? Which is fascinating because if you look in Romans 13, which is a, a, you know, a blueprint for how the local government is supposed to work, and he talks about you know, the powers that be, right? And it says, he is your minister to do these things, to, you know, to exact justice and bear the sword of God. That word minister is deacon or diakonos, <laughs> which is the same as literally a deacon. They're literally a servant. That, that is the role that the judge and the magistrate is supposed to have. When you have authority over somebody, if you are, whether you're a father or a mother, or if you're a husband to the wife, or the pastor to a church, or a, um, even a, an employer or a master, you are providing a service to your employees. In that, in, in that particular capacity, you're giving them an opportunity to add value to others and be able to support themselves. And so in all these ways, your, your perspective and your attitude is one of service, of adding value to others. You are not greater than them. You are not above them in value or worth. You are serving as a leader. That's the whole concept of servant leadership. Yeah, and there's so there's this idea of like the circumventation of the standard symbols and the standard power structures mm -hmm. because, again, like we talked about with the law of God, the mm -hmm. law being different because we're all made in the image of God, mm -hmm. and because of who we are, this breaks down to how we treat each other in light of that. Mm -hmm. So that we're not lording it over each other because we realize that we're all made in the image of God and we're all going to be judged by God mm -hmm. in the end. Therefore, we're there to serve each other. Ephesians is beautiful talking as, about this as well. Right, as image bearers of God. Yep. What's interesting is that there's also biblical encouragement or commands for you to for there to be social mobility for you yep. to not stay where you are in yep. the sense of not just wallowing in your own sin kind of like mm -hmm. we talked about lemuel with the being neither poor nor rich he mm -hmm. was asking god to provide for him and also that he would be able to work to attain the things he needed yep so yeah. in ephesians chapter 4 verse mm -hmm. 28 let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, that, that he might have to give to him who needs. Mm -hmm. 
So what it's saying is this person used to steal. Mm-hmm. He used to steal to provide for himself. Don't, he's saying, if you used to be this person, don't do that anymore. Don't steal anymore, but mm-hmm. work with your hands so that not only that he might be able to provide for himself, but mm-hmm. that he may be, have to give to him that need it. Provide for others as well. Right. So he's gone from being a drain on society so much that he's having to steal to feed himself mm-hmm. to someone who's pouring back into his to people who are in need. Mm-hmm. And, and then and this the, goes back to First Corinthians seven twenty one, like I quoted earlier. Um, you know the phrase, "But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather." You know, take the yeah. opportunities to move forward in your status. And then James talks about how he's correcting them for being he's correcting them for being a flippant and for basically pretending that they're owed time on this earth and he says come now you who say tomorrow to today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town spend a year there buy sell trade and make a profit Mm -hmm. he says don't count on tomorrow Mm -hmm. So if the Lord will, we will do that. But he's not saying it's wrong to go buy and sell and make a profit. He's saying, you know, doing it outside the will of God and being overconfident in your own ability to do it is the sin. So exactly content and humble. He's he's not saying that trading and buying, selling, trading and making a profit is wrong. He's saying that it's wrong that you assume that when you're assuming and not Mm -hmm. and not being humble. Um, in the parable also, of the talents. As mentioned earlier, all those parables of the talents, um, where you're just sitting there and hoarding what you have, um, or, or in that sense, you know, just giving it all away without actually um, investing it is kind of similar. But, you know, investing it in business to help others and give opportunity to others and thereby making a profit for yourself is considered righteous that that's that that was the that was the commended way of action so right. you know advancing yourself forward in that way is also commended right so, and that there's a continuation of this and that by following the godly principles if you follow mm-hmm. these godly principles and you are generous but you're also mm-hmm. being wise with your money this is going to lead to increase Yep. And that throughout the book of Proverbs is talking about the wise man increases in wealth, but the fool squanders everything that he has. Yep. And that there's a principles that if you apply these, your wealth is going to naturally build in the mm-hmm. world that God has created, yep. but that you must not be focused on that. That wealth right. in and of itself isn't the focus. The Which love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Which is in contrast to one of the narratives that I see a lot is this idea that if you are rich, you could only have gotten it by cheating and stealing and, um, che- and you know, cheating your way through the systems on the backs of others and taking from other people, taking their opportunities, which is the opposite of what's true. Um, right, and it's, it's a, <laughs> completely it's a the fundamental opposite. denial of the way God has created the world. And mm-hmm. by our observ- observation of that are the entire system of economics, mm-hmm. which is the exchange of goods and adding value mm-hmm. through the exchange of goods and services, yep. which 
is just an absolute denial of the fact that the way people get wealthy is by adding value to other people's lives. Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos adds massive value to lots of people's lives mm -hmm. simply by the fact that he created one of the best websites ever, Amazon. Yep, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. And that's, it's a, it's a fundamental misunderstanding and it's rooted in greed mm -hmm. and actually a form of classism of yep. denying the humanity of the wealthy who mm -hmm. are a higher um, economic class than you just by dint of where they are and who, what, what they have. And what's amazing is that when you actually, form of covetousness. When you, exactly. And when you study, you know, the nature of economics and you study the nature of history and society and scripture, as we pointed out in multiple cases, um, there are actually benefits to there being inequality in a society. Um, when, is coupled with freedom of social mobility, which goes into um, kind of as a short side note, uh, going back to some of the defining of terms to help clarify our next section in this podcast to defining what a caste system is in contrast to a class system. So because a lot of times what we see nowadays, well, the reason we thought this was important is we see equivocation happening mm -hmm. and there's discussion of there's equivocation, which is a false equivalency being drawn between mm -hmm. a class the class system that we live in, yep. in which there are rich, there are poor, there are those in high, in circles of high society and there are people who are in low society. Mm -hmm versus a caste system which is very different right a caste so a class system is based on where you are in the class setups in those definitions of what a what makes a class of education of wealth of social status mm -hmm. whereas a caste that puts you in a certain level Right. As a caste. Is you, when, when you're born, you are, what happens in a caste system is that you were born into a class, effectively. So based off of your birth status, you are assigned into a particular strata where you are permitted to only access certain levels of education, certain levels of wealth, certain jobs that give you certain amounts of wealth, and certain status in the society. And you can't move. It's like, it, it's literally in the law, that you cannot move outside of where you were born. A caste system is essentially merging the race mm -hmm. with your class and linking yep. the two to each other so that you cannot change because remember right. race or ethnicity is something that is from is based in your past in your heritage yep something that and you can't change therefore unchangeable yep. and what caste systems do is they tie your current class to your previous heritage Yep. And it's Which removing fundamentally. the ability to change where you are. Yes, and it's fundamentally, again, a denial of the Mago Dei by right. saying some people are inherently better than others and therefore should be able to have better jobs and better access to resources mm -hmm. based on their better heritage. Nope. It's a denial of the, of the Imago Dei in all the different casts that aren't yours. And what's interesting is that there used to be, in America, a sort of hybrid 
class and caste system. There were there was a particular caste that existed within a society that had social mobility for people outside that caste. Because we had the chattel slavery that was present, and if you were born as a slave, you could not move out of it. There was no opportunity to actually, even owners had very little possibility of even liberating their slaves. It was very difficult for them to do so even willingly. They were, they were defined by law as a separate caste. And everybody else who wasn't part of the slavery caste had social mobility. They could be poor, they could advance, they could have social mobility, they could, you know, anybody could become president, kind of an idea. They had this social mobility for other people. And so eventually that was destroyed. That they opened it all up to a class and there were still legal yep. limitations. So there was still a kind of a pseudo caste system with the Jim Crow laws that eventually got taken out uh, with the civil liberties uh, movement and all that kind of stuff. So it was a process of time that took for people to work from the beginning all the way through. It was a lot of work from a lot of people, a lot of abolitionists working based on this whole premise of the Imago Dei trying right. to break down this biblical injustice. Right. The rights endowed by our creator. Yes. We talked about last time. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the pursuit of happiness. Exactly. And yes. opening it up to everyone to pursue that happiness. So what's right. interesting is, is that now, kind of taking some of these principles and applying them in illustration to some of our current day situations, that there is actually a, a culture that some of them have their roots in the, in the history of the caste system and in the disadvantages that their ancestors had. And so they were born into a particular um, status, right? But they're not locked into it, not by force. Some of them, however, have taken an attitude of what has become a culturalized blame shift, a, a, culture, a culture of classism, where they have for multiple generations been of low class, people who have turned to criminal activity to supplement their income with what they get. Um, they are living in poverty. They live on, you know, on the dole, uh, you know, in um, uh, welfare, that kind of stuff. And they believe that, and, and yes, thank, thank you for reminding me, um, Ravi. Uh, they have these broken, they're, they're the, one of the key determinators of this is that they are broken families. This is one of the biggest issues that um, in our well, last episode we talked about happiness. Is, yeah, this, this ghetto culture kind of is, mm -hmm. it's like a mixture where they've mixed mm -hmm. their, instead of the caste system, Mm -hmm. which says your class is defined by where who you were born as. Mm -hmm. They're kind of almost making it a cast on themselves. It's almost yeah. a self-imposed by saying that they can't get ahead. Mm -hmm. They're shifting the blame, like you were saying. Yep. They're saying they're defined by shifting the blame. Right. So there's so they shift the blame off of themselves and onto their history and onto the upper classes currently right. and, and demand that the other classes fix it for them. Yes, that the other classes need to 
fix or repay or do yep. whatever because I have a bad life. They, they, want, they want to be given what they need to move up instead right. of, like, like Paul said, working with their hands, the thing that is good so that they may have to give to the needed. Instead of working themselves to move forward, they're demanding that it be given to them. So it's their, they're, they're taking their own responsibility as bearers of the Imago Dei and demanding it of other people. So they're re rejecting their own responsibility and they're dehumanizing the others and idolizing themselves that they need, that they have this entitlement. Um, they resent their status and then they blame specifically the authority figures and the wealthy individuals and use it to rationalize um, their criminal destructive behavior that's actually keeping themselves down um, by saying that it's a protest against the system. That it's what these other classes deserve for pushing them into this and keeping them down in their status. So they've effectively institutionalized victimhood. They're controlling everybody else through guilt. Now this right. is not... They refuse responsibility yep. and they dehumanize the upper classes by saying that they are inherently evil because they have more, again, mm -hmm. with that whole... Um, again, with the whole dehumanization, this is a, a classism and covetousness, which is idolatry. And what's and amazing is... blame authority figures and yep. saying that the authority, anyone who holds authority, has it because they are an evil person. And what's amazing is that specifically that the, um, the victimhood, the um, resentment against authority figures, um, the blame shifting... All of this kind of stuff is institutionalized through prison. This is the kind of culture that is not only perpetuated through you know criminals talking to each other in prison, but actually encouraged through the way the prison system is set up. I won't go into all the details. Um, it's really depressing. But <laughs> this is what's called institutionalization. And it's a mindset that you get just by osmosis by being there. You have to fight really hard against it in order to be able to escape it and avoid it. I had to fight really hard um, to avoid it. So when you get out, all of these authority figures have this mindset of victimhood that they've been put upon, that the man stuck it to them in this sense. And so they're going to stick it back to the man, you know, and they have this institutionalized mindset of victimhood and res resentment against authority figures. And so this whole culture is in this revolving door system of constantly perpetuating this mindset. Now, this is not every single person. I'm not specifically talking about black people. And this is actually common throughout <laughs> every um, ethnicity that goes through this particular culture has this why we call it a ghetto culture rather than a, um, a black culture or a, you know, a Mexican culture or whatever. It's this mindset that is this resentment and it is, you know, against yes. everything that we just talked about. But it's interesting because there's another culture, there's, there's multiple people who are getting this wrong in society, but there's another culture that I kind of labeled the, the bully culture, which is Kind of, this is kind of the other end of the, the other end of the war in a sense right. that we're seeing right now, which is typically a more of a middle class. Right. So, um, the, so the ghetto culture is, one di is the ditch on one side of the road. Yeah. And the bully culture is the ditch on the other side of the road. Right. And, and these people tend to react to uh, in, in a defensive fashion 
to the ghetto culture, blaming them for all their ills. And so they have this mindset of these people are rejecting authority and they are fundamentally wrong for this. And they dehumanize the lower class and they resort to vindictive rather than restitutionary punishment. They, they're the ones who are perpetuating the mass incarceration by the whole pro-prison throw away the key and, you know, all the, all these other problems that they have. And unfortunately, a lot of times this perpetuates inside um, the police and the you know, correction officers where they have a uniform that they are, can act use as a shield to sanction their dominant behavior that kind of creates kind of this power trip and they, right. so they don't have accountability. And so they idolize themselves as above it all, like we were talking about earlier. And so there's this, it's, it's the other side of the coin. And, right. and again, they, it's the dehumanization yep. of it's a dehumanization of the ghetto culture mm-hmm. of people who are from there. It's denying their personhood and claiming them to be just part of a group. And this group as a whole mm-hmm. is unworthy. Right. They'll, they'll see these particular cultural indicators for people who are of the lower class. And because they deal so frequently with criminals from that class, they paint with a broad brush the entirety of the class as criminal. And when you suddenly define people by their origin as criminal, that means there's no opportunity for redemption. Right. Right. They've dehumanized them. So that's where you get the whole idea. um, This like combat mindset where they see Mm -hmm. their culture at war with the other culture. And Mm -hmm. by being at war, it dehumanizes an entire section of the population. Yep. And declares them as unworthy to have anything done with them, but to be thrown in jail to, so they stop bothering us basically. Right. And so instead of judging individuals for their own crimes, they're judged based off of the entire um, generation and the entire history. Cause this is, this is the amazing thing, right? So when you, when you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead a little bit here to Ezekiel 18, where it talks about a particular proverb that Israel was using and complaining about God's justice and saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So that what they're saying is that our parents did something wrong and you're blaming us um, and we're getting in trouble for what our parents did. This is not fair, right? And God was saying, no, you're doing the same things. Um, I judge each individual person based off of their own actions. If their father does something wrong and then you see what they did and take his lesson and turn around and do what's right, then they, I will bless you. Um, it's your own action, your choice there. Whereas if somebody does something right and their child rebels against that and goes to the wrong, then they will be judged for that. And so you see this, this pattern, both the ghetto culture and the bully culture where the, um, the ghetto culture will blame the current generation for the past generations of oppression and put it all on the current generation and put the blame there. And then the, ghetto, the bully culture will look at all the past generations of criminality and blame the current generation. So it both goes both directions. Right. So, and, it's, and it's a real human tendency we it have. Is. And it is. It's very natural. To <laughs> judge, uh, we we have this very hard time dealing with individuals. We like to Mm -hmm. 
generalize and pigeonhole. We like a lot of times, and this is one of the reasons why we didn't weren't using a lot of statistics, is we like to yeah. use statistics to remove humans from the equation mm-hmm. and to just turn everybody who were who we don't like into a number mm-hmm. that is part of the problem. And it's a temptation to sin and this is a temptation that we all have we want to make it us against the others and we want to simplify everything we want to be lazy in our thinking (laughs) prejudice is one of the things that is so easy but it's also sinful and prejudice is literally pre-judging uh Mm -hmm. pre-judice judicial system it's pre-judging someone based on generalized characteristics about them. Right. And it's, on one hand, it's inevitable because mm-hmm. we always make assumptions about people. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm walking up to meet the person, we see patterns. I'm reading them based on my history and I'm unconsciously choosing, but we have to make the conscious decision to put aside our prejudices and to treat everyone as an individual, made in the an individual bearer of the image of God. Indi- yeah. Right, because the group isn't what holds it. Each yeah. person in the image of God created he them. Male and female, he created them. He created them individually in his image. And this brings us to what is, what's the main point? What's the overarching point? Mm-hmm. The overarching point is that we're made in the image of God. Yep. So it's not our class. Mm-hmm. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our background that's important. So what is the important thing, the key quality that we're supposed to hold on to? Mm-hmm. And this, we're going to go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting in... Verse nine. Verse nine. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Mm-hmm. So what he's saying the fundamental to fundamental unity that, of the church is beautiful. Right. That what's really great about these passages, and there's a couple of them. Um, another one is Galatians chapter three. Mm-hmm. For you are all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put up on Christ. There is there neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither there male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. And so what, what Paul's communicating through these two different sections is that Christ is now our identity. Yeah. Our identity is no longer tied to our religious upbringing, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, where we came from. It doesn't matter if you were raised an atheist or if you were raised a, a conservative Presbyterian <laughs> or a Roman Catholic. It, uh-huh. Your religion when you were raised doesn't matter. Circumcised mm-hmm. or uncircumcised. This is like how you were raised, whether you were raised in a conservative family or mm-hmm. a liberal family. Maybe you were raised in the 
foster care system. Mm -hmm. Your upbringing isn't what defines you anymore. Mm -hmm. Barbarian. Barbarians, these were people who were living outside of what was considered culture at the time. Mm -hmm. These were the groups of people who were without civilization. Scythian, these were the people, the Scythians were a group of people who were like kind of on the border. They were the northern people. They were considered like rough around the edges, maybe like <laughs> rednecks or that type of people. Even rednecks can like, be saved. Who's like kind of like partially, yeah, I guess they kick, they're kind of in our culture, but not really. <laughs> Bond or free. This is the like fundamental difference between someone who has control of their own life versus mm -hmm. someone who is under the control of somebody else. The class system, whether you're yes, a free man system. or you're a slave. This is like the hard line distinction in the class system. And, and what's fascinating is he also includes male or female. And right. He says, like, we're all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that that these distinctions stop vanishing. There, there is people who are still bond, right. people who are still free. The people, you still stay Right. Agreed. Your, so your circumcision or uncircumcision are yes. still a thing. Yeah. You're How, still, you're is, still is a guy. Still, you're still a girl. It still exists, but it doesn't matter. Right. But that's not who you are. You're, yep. Who you are is not defined by any of these things. It's not defined mm -hmm. by your class. It's not defined by your race. It's not defined mm -hmm. by your upbringing. Who you are is defined by the fact that you are in Christ. Mm -hmm. There is therefore now no distinction. There's no line. Mm -hmm. the, there's the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all of Our, Abraham's seed. We are all heirs according to the promise. Yes. There's no, there's no longer this dichotomy between us and them. We are all one mm -hmm. in Christ Jesus. So when we have, so we have the temptation to, like, we, we, can, we can look at people and we can say, you know, in my experience, I've encountered these particular kinds of people and there's this particular pattern. Like, I, I don't particularly like this group. People who have tattoos are generally mean or whatever. And our, our ability our, as humans is not very good at, you know, avoiding unconscious bias. We're actually, it's actually impossible for us to avoid it, but it's a temptation. And so because of this, that we are all one, we need to remind ourselves of that before God and say, these people, every single individual we encounter is, has the Imago Dei and I need to engage with them as an individual and give them the benefit of the doubt and not fall prey to the temptation to, just like, like a temptation to lust after somebody or be angry. If somebody, you know, insults us, you know, we have the temptation to be offended and get angry with them. That instinctive reaction to it is there, but that's just a temptation. We have the choice by the grace of God to reject that and live in righteousness. So in the same way, we can, you know, see and these patterns and prejudge people, but then choose not to act according to that prejudice, regardless of whether it's based off of class or ethnicity. Right. So the foundation that kind of tying all this together is that our unity comes from our create being created in the image of God and that while race as in ethnicity still exists, your background still is a part of who you are. 
Mm-hmm. Your those advantages, class those exists. opportunities, those disadvantages, mm-hmm. all of that. Right. Your current position in society is still part of who you are. Mm-hmm. It is not definitional of who you are. The yep. definitional part of your existence should be your identity in Christ. Your unity in Christ is the key thing that unites us all. And even outside of believers, unbelievers, our unity is in the fact that we're made in the image of God. And therefore, we all have inherent worth beyond anything else. Mm-hmm. In the fact that he is the Lord and we're called to love him with mm-hmm. all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the way we do that, the way that that's worked out in this world is by loving our neighbor as ourself. And there's something such so fundamentally comforting about that, the immutable nature of our fundamental worth. It doesn't matter what sins we may commit. It doesn't matter how far away we stray. It doesn't matter, is it, you know, our upbringing, our status, but even the, the, the more important things in scripture about our righteousness, our sin, and our standing before God, we're all judged in that sense. And, but yet God desires us and loves us despite that, that, that value is still there. It's just the beautiful yes. thing about God's love in that sense that we cannot no matter what we do, revoke that. Nothing um, can separate us from the love of God. Amen. I think that's a okay, well, great way to wrap guys, it up. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. We yeah. really appreciate it. If you would mm-hmm. share this with your friends, yeah. if you have any questions, anything you are wondering about that you'd like us to talk about or just want to ask us, go ahead, shoot us an email, get into our you message us on Facebook or get Join into our, our Discord, Discord channel. Chat. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we'd love to hear from you guys. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you guys next time. So God bless. God bless. <laughs>